Well, hey, good morning. Um, I'm really excited to introduce to you our uh, guest speaker, Pastor Gray Ewing, who's from New Valley Church. Um, Pastor Gray is a really good friend of Pastor Tim. Uh, he's also a church planner, and uh, they're, they're also in downtown Phoenix. And uh, Pastor Gray is here with his wife, Becca, and their three kids. And so it's, it's just an honor to have you here. So PBC, let's give a warm welcome to Pastor Gray as he comes up and preaches God's word to us this morning. You know those times when you, um, you see somebody you know and you're kind of making small talk with them and it's been a long time since you've, you've seen them and uh, you're kind of closing off the conversation and then, uh, you know, uh, you kind of give these, these closing thoughts and uh, you might say, hey, we should, we should do lunch sometime uh, or, you know, we should get our families together or, or something like that and you don't really necessarily even mean it because you think like that would be nice but... You, it probably actually won't happen. Uh, and uh, I had kind of one of those moments when I was hanging out with Pastor Tim uh, a few weeks ago. I, I said to him, hey, we should, we should trade preaching uh, sometime. We should just kind of do it. And he, like a boss, I mean, he immediately said, without consulting his calendar, he's like, yeah, how about June 4th? I'm like, really? Like, that's so specific. Um, but turns out it worked out for both of us, and I didn't mean it as something I didn't want to do. I do want to do it, and I'm so happy to be here uh, with you this morning. My name is Gray. Uh, my wife is Becca. Our three boys are in the, in the nursery or in the kids' ministry over there. Uh, so thank you so much for, for having us this morning. We are so glad to be here. We love Tim. We love Jaya. We love what you guys are doing here in downtown Phoenix. And if, if you don't know this, Phoenix is just this remarkably... Um, united place when it comes to churches. And I just love that you guys are here, that, that, um, that we, we share the same gospel, the, the same kingdom mindset. And, uh, and I'm really glad to be here this morning looking at this passage from Kings, uh, from 1 Samuel in this series together. So let's dive into it together. Uh, I heard a story a few years ago about this group of, of American tourists they were touring, um, they were in England, they were touring the, the, uh, the House of Lords, which is where the, uh, the British Parliament meets, and this, this group of tourists was there, and um, they were just kind of gawking, as American tourists do, at, at everything that, that the British have, and uh, it just so happened that day that there was this, uh, this figure there, Lord Hailsham, was the, the Lord Chancellor, now I, I, as a typical American, I have no idea what a Lord Chancellor is, uh, but I don't know, it's, it's a semi-important position in the British Parliament. And uh, he was there in his full regalia, I mean, he's a black robe with like gold tinted, and he's got his wig on, he's looking very official. And so he's there, and these American tourists are there at the House of Lords. Well, this, this kind of moment happened where Lord Hailsham was, was walking down this corridor, and this group of American tourists are kind of coming towards him. And uh, he looks beyond the tourist, and he sees a good friend of his, a guy by the name of Neil Martin, uh, just another guy in the House of Lords. And he ignores the American tourist, and he, he raises his hand to greet his friend Neil uh, across this crowd, and he, he yells out with his hand raised up, Neil! And then all the American tourists look up at him and immediately drop to one knee before this like figure who's before them dressed in clothes they've never seen before. Moral of the story is, 
Uh, silly, silly Americans, right? Uh, we're so dumb. We don't know kind of what a Lord Chancellor is. We don't know uh, how to act properly. And so what we end up doing is kneeling to things that we don't understand. I actually think that it's not just an American problem. I think that's, that's a problem of the, of the human condition. I think there's, there's something built into us as human beings that causes us to kneel before things that we don't necessarily understand. I'm talking about authority. So every single one of us, this is actually a good thing, every single one of us is built into us a desire to have authority that's outside of ourselves. We crave authority. We crave that ruling because our lives are so unmoored and there's so much going on. We want that kind of authority figure in our life. But here's the problem. We end up kneeling towards things that we don't understand. We end up bowing to authority that is not actually good for us. And this, this is like essential information when it comes to the area of the kings that we're talking about today. I love this series that you guys are doing, the Bible that Jesus read. I love preaching from the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites. Um, and so to talk about the kings, you have to understand that part of the human heart, the desire to kneel, the desire for authority and how it gets abused in different situations. The problem is we kneel to things that we don't understand. That was Israel's problem as well. Israel is in this great time of transition. Uh, if you know the story of the Bible, um, they've, they've transitioned so many times. Just kind of from a sociological perspective, Israel started out as a family. Right? You probably talked about that the first week when you talked about the Pentateuch. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's this family. And, and it's Abraham's family. And the family grows. And then they're subjected to slavery. And they have this transition to where they're kind of growing as a family, but under a different rule. And then the Lord brings them out with the exodus. And they transition again. They become a nomadic people. Right now, kind of from a sociological perspective, they've transitioned from being this kind of family to being a nomadic people group. And then they transition again. And they become tribal. Okay? They, they separate into 12 tribes. And then uh, there's this kind of this, this Wild West period called the Judges, okay, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And from a sociological perspective, it builds up this kind of tension. We need more authority. And so we have the transition into the kings, the monarchy. Now, that makes sense from a sociological standpoint, but... but at every single stage of that development, there's also a spiritual element that is going on. It's what we're going to look at today as we look at this passage from Samuel where um, Israel asks for a king. That's putting it mildly. They actually demand a king. And we can actually understand that from their perspective, from that kind of sociological perspective. But here's the key, really, to understanding this whole section of Scripture. When you read 1 Samuel, we read... 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the time of the kings. When Jesus read that, I think what he would have seen and what we're kind of expected to, to know about this, this time in Israel's history is this question. It's the question that drives uh, all of this, this narrative. All right, the question is this. Will Israel ever find the right king? Will Israel ever find the right king? King. It's, it's a quest for the right king, for the right kind of authority. And it's a, 
it's a, a series of kings that are not the right kind of authority and that the, the people of Israel are bowing towards things that they don't understand and is not good for them. Will they ever have the right kind of authority? Will they ever find the right king? That's the question that, that drives this whole section of scripture. And what we see as we go through each of these books, this idea of kings is just this comedy of errors, right? It's almost comical as you read through how many of these kings, all of them really, turn aside from following after God. They don't become the right kind of king. The closest we get is, is David, right? You know David that great king, he's, he kind of sets the par for, for the, the positive king. And nobody else really ever becomes like David. But even David himself is an adulterer, a murderer, all right, a bad father. All of these things, the Bible goes out of its way to say all of these kings are flawed. It's a comedy of errors, one after another, through the United Kingdom period, okay? There's a United Kingdom where there's Saul, and then there's David, and then there's Jonathan, and it's one kingdom, Judah and Israel together. And then there's a divided kingdom. Judah separates, and, and, uh, and Israel separates, and Jeroboam and Rehoboam are, are uh, Solomon's sons, and they kind of go their own way, and they never really recover from that period of being together. It's a comedy of errors over and over and over again. What I want us to see today is just is three things, and um, the first one is this. It, it's, it's the longing for lesser kings. The longing for lesser kings. As you read this passage of Scripture, you will see, and as you read the other historical books during this period, you will see there is a longing for lesser kings. This idea of the comedy of errors, king after king, that's so terrible, Starts in this passage when Israel demands a king. And they demand a king for human reasons, reasons that I think we can relate to. There's a longing there. The longing is for a lesser king. So before we criticize Israel, let's look at that longing because the longing is real. What did Israel want? They wanted trustworthy authority. All right, we saw that in verse 3. It says this. Yet his sons did not walk, these are Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. And Israel is coming to Samuel, and they say, okay, first of all, you're old. <laughs> did you see that? You're old. Let's just get it out there. You're old. Your sons are horrible. We need some trustworthy authority. We need someone to take care of us. They wanted trustworthy authority. They wanted justice. I think we can relate to that. Verse 6 says, uh, give us a king to judge us. And that, that's actually repeated a couple times. A king to judge us. We want someone to say this is right and this is wrong. We want an authority that cares about justice. Your sons, they, they go after bribes. They, 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 justice is just the highest bidder. We want real justice. They want trustworthy authority. They want justice. They want security. A couple of times in this passage, verse 20, it says that we want someone to go out for us and fight our battles. Right? We don't feel safe with you, Samuel. We don't feel like you can protect us. We need a king 
to go out and fight our battles for us. They want security, someone to keep them safe. Justice, trustworthy authority, security. Are these not things that the human heart wants? The longing, do you see the longing there for for something that is good? Do you blame them? We all want the same things. The fear that they have is real. I mean, they just have all of these fears. Uh, It's not Christmas time, uh, so it's not really that relevant. But you guys have seen Charlie Brown Christmas uh, before? It's like the best Christmas movie. Don't even argue with me about that. Uh, It's like 30 minutes long. It's like 30 minutes of like cinematic perfection, okay? And uh, if you've seen it before, you know Charlie Brown, he's depressed, He's sad. He wants to know what the true meaning of Christmas is. And so he goes and consults Lucy, who's got a little psychological help stand where you can put in five cents and, uh, and she'll give you your you know, psychological advice. And he comes to her all depressed and, and she says, I think that the way that we're going to help you, Charlie Brown, is, is that we just need to pinpoint what you are afraid of. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of cats? And she lists the like, scientific name for cats. Uh, are you afraid of ocean? And list that name. Uh, and he says, no, no. And, and she says, do you think you have pantophobia? And he says, what's that? And she says, the fear of everything. And he says, that's it. The fear of everything. That's what I have. And that's what Israel has. They have like the fear of everything. It's like, okay, our world is, is falling apart as we know it. We just want to be ruled in a way that that's, that's helpful, that, that the kings will fight our battles for us, that they'll just do basic things like justice, like uh, telling us what's right and what's wrong. Do you see the longing there, the fear there that drives them to this point? Why does God, why is God upset with them for wanting this? He says... They haven't rejected you, Samuel, by asking for a king. They've rejected me. What's going on there? Why does God blame them for wanting the things that he knows that they will want and that what each one of us actually does want? It's actually not true that God is against the state of of having kings. If you look in the other parts of the Old Testament, uh, you see there's paradigms already. He says, when you go into the land, you're going to have these kings. This is in Deuteronomy and other places in Scripture God fully expects them to have a human king at some point. They're going to move into this time period, and they're going to have a monarchy. Okay, so it's not the idea of human kings. What's God upset about? What he's upset about is is this. They're, They're looking at the other nations. Did you see that? It's three times in our passage. We want another, we want a king like the nations. We want to be like those who are around us. And they're looking side to side, for the, they have this problem, right? They want authority, security, justice. And they're looking side to side at the other nations and saying, well, how does everybody else get this? They get it through these kings, and so we want a king like them. And what God has said is, why aren't you looking to me first? And you can almost feel the hurt from the Lord. In verse 8, he says, in verse 7, He says to them, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this very day. It's like, this is, 
This is nothing new. They continually, continually look side to side rather than looking up to me for what their greatest needs are. And what God wants to say to them in this moment is, your longings are good. Yes, you want security, you want help, you want peace, you want all of these things. That longing is real. But who is the one who brought you out of Egypt? Who gave you manna in the wilderness? This bread from heaven. Who, I mean, it's, you walked around the city of Jericho seven times and the walls fell down. Do you think that was because you had a king? No, it was because you had me. Why aren't you looking to me who gave them the promised land? See, you, you want these things, these longings that are real, but it's for something lesser than what you already have. You have a longing for a lesser king, and it won't work. It won't provide the things that you think it will provide. My uh, oldest son, Caden, we have three boys. And uh, Caden is, is the oldest. He just is a, a one-hit wonder with all the things that he says. Uh, a couple years ago, this was when we lived in Chandler, uh, we are sitting at the dinner table, He's probably two years old. We're having some, I think it was homemade lasagna that night that my wife had spent hours on during the day. And we're just kind of small talking. And How is it? It's good. Thanks, thanks for making dinner, honey. And uh, suddenly, Caveman just announces, uh, this is delicious. And, and we kind of look at him and we say, oh, great. That, that's very kind of you to say. And then he says, it's, it's Costco delicious. And we're like, what? Costco delicious? Did we just hear you right? Like, what does that even mean? And it took like a, some back and forth to like figure out what, we didn't even know he could do like adjectives like that. I mean, he's two years old. Like, Costco delicious, what do you mean? Turns out what he meant was, this is so good like Costco is good. Uh, like when we eat at Costco, you, you guys eat at Costco, right? Sometimes you've eaten at Costco before. All right, the hot dogs. And the drink for $1.50 or $1.75, right? It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. I can feed my whole family for $8, okay? So we eat, that's a confession. We eat at Costco every now and then, okay? And yeah, it's $1.50 for a hot dog and a drink. You're like, okay, I'll take three. I don't know what I'm going to do with three drink cups, but I'll figure it out, I guess. Um, and so you, he liked Costco, and we didn't even know he liked it that much. Uh, and I will admit that that Costco food satisfies a certain longing, okay? There's that moment where you've been going around the store the whole time and you're tired and your family is, you know, it's just kind of at each other's throats. And that idea of the hot dog and the drink and, you know, the whatever the smoothie and whatever else you get is amazing. But are you really going to compare that to my wife's cooking? Right in her presence. Costco delicious. Costco doesn't set the standard for deliciousness, okay, which is what he was saying. Your mom made homemade lasagna. That's, that's backwards, right? If, if something is good, it's, it's that your mom sets the standard and not Costco that we get for a buck fifty. You see, Israel is doing something similar. They're saying, we're looking side to side. We're looking at the nations, and we really we think that this is what will satisfy us. And God's saying that is a lesser thing. You're using something lesser, and you're making it. You're comparing it to the greater thing, which is having me as your king. 
And if you would just look to me and cry out to me when you have these longings. Have I not provided in every other circumstance? But he's willing to give it to them. They have these longings for the lesser king, but God says, do according to what they ask for. Give them a king. But then he reminds them of this. Here's the reality of lesser kings. All right, you have these longings for lesser kings. Here is the reality of lesser kings. The reality is this. You want a king like the other nations? Then you can have it. And in a word, what that king will do, because it's like the other nations, one word, that king is going to take. Take. The word is repeated over and over and over again. Verse 11 and verse 12 says, that king is going to take your sons and he's going to turn them into servants. He's going to take your daughters, verse 13. He's going to turn them into bakers and perfumers. He's going to take them. Verses 14 through 17, he's going to take your crops. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take your animals. He's going to take, 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 and take from you. You want a king like the nations, that's what the king like the nations will do. That's what ancient Near Eastern kings do. They take for themselves. Let me just bring this up to our reality right now because uh, maybe you've noticed just in some of the language here, the way I've done it this morning. This is not some kind of distant historical study for us. The story of Israel is the story of us. We are the people of God. And, and their, their longings for lesser kings and the reality of lesser kings is our longing and our reality. And the Bible is not, just, is, is not written about you, all right? It's not written about me, but it is written for us. And these longings are real. Their story is our story. There is a longing for a greater king. But in reality, we bow to lesser kings all the time. We bow to things that we don't understand or that are not good for us, even though we have this, the same longings for safety and security and comfort and authority that we can trust. We think we can find it by looking side to side. Hey, wonder what, how is everybody else getting by? How is everybody else getting by in this life? And we look side to side and we look at what people are doing and we think, oh, they go on a lot of vacations. Maybe I should go on a lot of vacations or they do this or they have this kind of work environment or they're an entrepreneur and they, they don't have a boss. Maybe I won't have a boss. And so we, we kind of look side to side and we think, where is the satisfaction, the security, this comfort, whatever it is that the human heart longs for, which are good longings, we look side to side rather than looking towards what God has given to us. We bow to lesser kings all the time. How do you know what those lesser kings are in your life? It's easy. What takes the most from you? What demands the most? Because the reality of the lesser kings from this passage is that they take and take and take. And that is true of everything that is not God that we place in authority over our own lives. It takes from us. What gets the most of you? 
What is slowly taking control? What is it or who is it that gets the most of you? And sometimes it's a sinful thing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a passion, it's a lust or a desire for control or maybe you are ruled by other people's opinions of you and that's what you wake up thinking about and you think about how can I please people and that kind of demands the most of your life. But whatever it is, some of those things are, are sinful things but some of them are actually good things. I'm gonna give you something that's a little cheesy but you're gonna remember it, okay? Here's the thing. Good things equal bad kings, Good things equal bad things. We just said what they wanted was authority. What they wanted was comfort and security. These longings, those are good things. But if those things or whatever the manifestation is that you have become the king of your life, they will be a bad king. They will be a lesser king. Good things are bad kings. Good things like your kids Parenting in general, good thing, really bad king. Your kids are not the king of your life. I've noticed a trend recently, uh, and trust me, this is, I have three kids, uh, all under five, so this is real to me. But I've noticed this trend where we, we, like nap time or bedtime is king, right? Nap time gets first place in a family life, and I get it, I really do, like, uh, organizing everything around nap time, okay? Um, because nap time is really important, and it is a good thing, right? But nap time is not king. And sometimes we, we turn away from a mercy or justice opportunity that's right in front of us, or we, we don't uh, go to church, or we don't engage in community, or we don't do the things that, that would lead us to greater intimacy with God or spend time with our spouse because we've got to get to nap time. That's king. That sets the standard, right? That, that little spot in the afternoon is the thing by which everything else gets defined. Good thing. It's a bad king. This is so uh, obvious and so traditional that I almost hesitate to say it, but it's so true of everybody just about your career, your job, is a good thing, but is a bad king. If everything is oriented around your ambition, your success, it will not give you the comfort, satisfaction, security that you think it will. It's a lesser king that you can't bow to if you want those things. The longings are there. The reality is there. Belonging for lesser kings, the reality of lesser kings. What this whole, this whole section of scripture is driving us towards is this. Will there ever be the right kind of king in Israel for God's people? And the answer to that is yes, but not in the book of Kings. In the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, through the New Testament, we know Jesus is the greater king. He's not the lesser king. He's the greater king. And actually, it solves this puzzle in a very unique and beautiful way. Because what God is saying in this passage is not, I'm not against human kings. I'm not against you having somebody that's an authority over you that is a human being. I'm, I'm sad that you have turned away from me. And what we have in Jesus Christ is this beautiful symmetry because he, we can serve a human king without rejecting God. Because he is the human king and the divine king, both at the same time. 
We follow him without turning away from God. We bow to the greater king. Jesus is the king that you want and you need most desperately. He's the fulfillment of everything that's been anticipated, longed for, hoped for during this period, all of the longings that we have. And every single stage of Jesus' life, his, his person and his work, demonstrate that he is the king. Not just a king, but the king of the universe and one that we should bow to. Because he satisfies every single one of these longings that we've just talked about. He takes away all of that fear. Remember Charlie Brown? (laughs) What are you afraid of, Charlie Brown? Do you have pantophobia? You're, You're afraid of everything. You're feeling all the feels. There's actually kind of a beautiful wraparound in that, that movie. Um, it's only 30 minutes long. Like I said, it's genius. Uh, I read an article about this a couple of years ago, and uh, someone pointed out something I'd never seen before. At the end of at the climax of the little film, uh, you know, Charlie Brown finds the true meaning of Christmas, and he, uh, he does so by this reading of Luke chapter 2. It's the story of the birth of Jesus. And that's the climax. And it doesn't explain it. It doesn't say, now he's not depressed anymore. It just ends with that. And that, that little section is read by, by a little Linus, the, the character Linus. And what does Linus always have with him? Anybody know? His blankie, right? He has his blanket. He always has his security blanket with him. And when he reads, this little character walks up to the microphone and he reads the story of Luke chapter 2. And when he gets to the part where the angels say, do not be afraid, he drops the blanket. He drops his security blanket. The angels say, don't be afraid because this is good news. The gospel is, the king has come. Don't be afraid. It's the end of pantophobia. It's the end of, of all of these longings that you have. It's found in Jesus Christ because he is the king who is born this day. But not just his birth, his life. Everywhere he goes, he's called the Christ, the Messiah. That is, the, that is a royal term. That's a, that's a kingly term, Messiah. So he's identified as the king even as he lives. But especially in his death, he, he is seen as the king. I don't know if you've seen all these parallels before, but as the crowds mock Jesus... It's, they mock him as a king. They put a purple robe, this regal robe on him. And, and he wears that in front of them. They're mocking him without them even realizing that he's actually wearing the sins of the world on his shoulders. And, and he, they, they, they put a crown of thorns on his head. That crown of thorns, they mock him. Oh, here's a king with a crown. Not realizing that his sufferings The thing that he's doing right there is becoming his crowning achievement. It's becoming, um, he's becoming the king through his suffering. They put a sign up on the cross that say, here's the king of the Jews mocking him. Without realizing they're actually bearing witness to a greater truth. He's not the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. In his death, he's the king. In his resurrection, he's the conquering king. Over death, it says the last enemy to be destroyed 
is death, and death is destroyed by Jesus' resurrection, and he comes as a king. He wins that battle. He's on earth for a little while. Then he ascends into heaven. His ascension is about his kingship. He ascends into heaven, and he sits where? At the right hand of God the Father. That's a kingly position. He's taken his role as king. When he returns, again, which we're waiting for right now, it will be as a king. Revelation 19 says that he comes on a white horse and written on his robe is the king of kings. He comes back as a king. Every part of the person and work of Jesus, everything that he has accomplished for us points to him as the king. And the question each one of us has to have, the question that this section of scripture drives us towards as we are reading it personally, is this: is he the king of my life? Is, is he the rightful king? Have I found what I'm looking for in him? Because he does give everything that we want and everything that we need, ultimately. Aren't you tired of lesser kings? <laughs> bowing to these things that you don't understand or don't necessarily even trust. Jesus has won the trust that we, that we can give him because he's not an ancient Near Eastern king. He's not a king that takes and takes and takes. He's not something that demands more and more and more of your life. I mean, he does in a sense, but he is the king who gives, not takes. He gave of his life for you. And it makes him worth following, makes him worth bowing towards the right kind of king. I want to send us out with a challenge uh, today that uh, I think is appropriate from this passage of scripture. It's, it's this. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, it's, it's to give your life to Jesus, to bow to him as the king for the first time. He's worthy of it. If you are a Christian, my challenge to you today is this, to stage a protest against your lesser kings. Stage a little protest against your lesser kings, saying, I'm not going to necessarily let these things have control of my life all the time. Whatever that thing is, it could be a sinful thing, it could be a good thing, but good things are bad kings. It's little ways that we can say, my, my allegiance is not to this thing. My allegiance, where I bow, is to Jesus Christ first. Let me give you an example from my life that's just uh, very, very imperfect. But um, one thing that I've kind of done with myself is like, the first thing in the morning, I'm not, I haven't allowed myself to go off of airplane mode on my phone, right, uh, until I pray, like, I have to pray before I turn off airplane mode, okay? That's not legalism, right? I know I'm saved by, by Jesus Christ and him alone. Uh, but I know that once I swipe up and push the airplane icon, then what's going to rush into my life are things and people and news and things that need my attention and all kinds of other things, and I will be ruled by them. In a sense, it'll be this invitation, come and take control of your world. Pray first. It's not, this isn't the king. My work isn't the king. My family isn't even the king. All the good things. Jesus Christ is the king of my life. I trust him more than I trust these other things. And so 
He gets the first word. I'm not going to orient my day towards things that will lead me from him. What can you do to stage a protest against your lesser king? Maybe it means just stopping something for a while, stopping social media, stopping whatever for a little while to say, I'm not going to let that thing or that person be the thing that dictates the way that my life is controlled. I'm going to rightly order my life under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because in my experience and the experience of history throughout the Bible, he is the only thing that's worthy of that kind of attention. Don't keep bowing to lesser things. Bow to him as the king. Let's pray. God, your word is convicting. It's, it's right there in front of us that these kings will demand, take, take, and take. And yet it's so easy, it's so just easy to give our life to them and to say, I will bow towards this. Bowing to things we don't fully understand or even love. But you have given us Jesus Christ, your son and our king. You are the king with him and you rule this universe, the Holy Spirit. And we bow to you today and we say, will you rightly order the affections of our heart, the longings that we have that are real? Would you help us to see them as things that only you provide? Help us by your spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.